This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Nick Hornby needs no introduction. We're just starting there. But, Nick, I have a question for you. I was having a moment where I was thinking, oh, no, he's gone just to movies and just to television and just to music. The Ben Folds 5 project was fun. It was great. But I'm really glad you're back. And I'm really glad you're back with Dickens and Prince, a particular kind of genius, because it feels like a very Nick Hornby book. Funnily enough, I'd just come off a pretty terrible um, TV project. Oh, no! Ended up not going anywhere. And I tore into this book as, as a, um, you know, not knowing whether it would ever be published or whether I'd finished it as a way of reclaiming my freedom from producers. <laughs> I'm very happy to hear that. And this book that you refer to is called Dickens and Prince, A Particular Kind of Genius. And I have to say, as I was reading it, I kept screaming, this is the perfect Nick Hornby book. This is the perfect Nick Hornby book. Because it brings together all of the things you love. It's music. It's books. It's fandom and creativity. So I'm glad you claimed your life back from the producers, but seriously, when did this book start? Because it is, it is very you, but it's also a little unexpected. You know, most authors have a fear that by the time they're finished their book, someone will have written something the same. And um, I thought, nah, uh, <laughs> no one's writing a book about Dickens and Prince at the moment. I'm going to have this field to myself. <laughs> It really did start with um, the reissued Sign of the Times um, mm-hmm. box set, which has 60 or 70 tracks extra on it. And as I think I said in, in, in the book, that's more than the Eagles released in the 1970s. And this was just um, a bit of extra from Prince that he was recording around the time. And when I was reading about it, it was explained to me that he was actually making two or three records at the same time. So, uh, you know, the song, um, If I Was Your Girlfriend, which he sings, is speeded up voice, that he was making a whole album with that character and then a whole album as something else. And then uh, it eventually got squished into one album. But I I thought, who does that? Who works on three records at the same time? And then I thought, oh, Dickens did that. Dickens wrote two books at the same time. Um, more than once. And um, and I just started thinking about them and thinking, oh, it's weird they died around the same age and, and the coincidences kept piling up. Well, and also, I mean, there was a little bit of piracy, <laughs> people lifting well, their business issues, yeah, yeah. Fighting with publishers and record execs and all of this yeah. kind of thing. So, yeah. I mean, on the surface, it makes sense when you look at sort of these little bits. But when you really dig in, I mean, both had difficult childhoods, both decided that, you know, their art was going to essentially be the thing that saved them. Yeah, and that that's all they would do with their lives, pretty mm-hmm. much. Prince just worked all the time. He recorded all the time. Um, I think we can have a, a new Prince album every six months for the next 40 or 50 years, given what's put away now. And he played shows after he'd finished playing shows. And then he went to sleep for a few hours, then he got up and he recorded and Dickens just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and he wrote these letters. You know, there are 12 volumes of letters, which you or I might think was a pretty good lifetime's work. And he walked and he thought, and he, he walked all through the night. He edited magazines. He got involved in social justice campaigns. They were both 
the hardest working men in show business, as they said about James Brown. I don't want to talk about this book in terms of biography per se. I mean, yes, obviously there are biographical details that pop up, but I mean, you're using this and it's very tiny. This is 159 pages. This is a very, <laughs> very digestible, we'll call it. It is. And it's fun. I mean, I know I sound giddy talking about this book, but I really am because it's one of these weird little books where you're like, yeah, this is why I'm a bookseller. Because why wouldn't you just sit down and think, well, I'm excited about both of these things. And it's not necessarily about all of the details. I mean, at one point, you're riffing on why perfectionism is kind of terrible and that neither of them were perfectionists. They were just like, we're just doing the work. And I'm laughing because there are times when you're writing copy and doing things as a bookseller where you're like, I just have to barf out the thing and get there and then we'll go to the next piece and it'll be fine. Yeah. And you know, we're talking about tiny pieces of copy, but at the same time, you know, when you take your stuff seriously, you don't want it to be terrible. You don't want it to be terrible, but I think these are people who are so overwhelmed by their own ideas yeah. that they didn't have the time, as it were, to spend three years making a 12-track record or five years writing a 300-page book. Um, they they just wanted to get it out there and, and get on. And what I think is interesting about it is that they are both immortal. Their work lives on. And um, nobody ever says, oh, I wish they'd spent a bit more time cleaning up Purple Rain or David Copperfield. It's, it's not like that. And I think it's a triumph for the people who just have so much to say that they need to move on. So part of the fun of this book, too, is this idea where you start to ask, well, was it the practice? Was it the doing of the work? Hmm. Or was it the fact that they consumed mm. a lot of art and theater and popular music? And I mean, obviously with Dickens, there wasn't a movie piece that comes later. But I want to talk about that for a second, because I think that's a really fun idea. I mean, there are people who make this stuff look very easy. Those people. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> Those people. Um, <laughs> they make it look easy. Yeah. I was interested, you know, because of the, the Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours and so on. Um, that Dickens' career was so meteoric um, and he'd barely written a thing um, apart from real jobbing journalism before he published his first book, um, before uh, uh, the Pickwick Papers came out. And, and I thought, well, where is the practice here? Um, he just started writing these sketches. Well, there was a book of sketches, then the Pickwick Papers. And, you know, he was in his early 20s. He really hadn't had time, not only because he was earning money, but uh, because he was doing this other work. He, he really hadn't had time to shape his craft, his fiction craft. And yet he did it, it consume an extraordinary amount. He used to go to the theatre whenever he could. He used to learn pieces by heart. He, he cared so much about how things were constructed, how they were delivered, and he studied them. I mean, of course... It's a consolation to us all who've spent time, uh, too much time listening to music and reading books. You think, oh, great, I'm qualified to be one of the greatest writers of all time because I, I sure have read a lot. Uh, of course, it's not like that either. But Prince messed around in the studio a lot. He, he had access to the studio through this, this guy. But uh, again, he was probably too young to have done the, the rigorous practice that that theory demands. Okay, but you also know in the new book that you also have a little bit of a you call it a not normal attachment to books and music 
mm. and movies. You have to be a little obsessive to want to be in this world. There are easier ways to make a living. I mean, yeah, you, I, you know this. I think that's right. And I can remember a couple of times in my life, but um, one was after seeing Springsteen for the first time when I was about uh, 81, I think. Um, he didn't. He didn't come here for the Darkness on the Edge of Town tour. And then the first time was the river. Um, uh, he came 75, I didn't get it. Um, and I had the best tickets I've ever had for anything. I mean, I, I just applied through the post in the way that you did in those days. And they were like magic tickets. I was with, with six friends. And every time you showed a ticket to an usher, they showed us further forward. And we were, we were three rows from the front in the indoor Wembley. And in fact, the bouncers cut the crowd off behind us. <laughs> so we, we could stand at the foot of the stage. Anyway, I, I saw this show and I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what it had done to me, how it made me feel. Um, it was for those three hours. Uh, it was just extraordinary. And we'd, we'd gone in a minivan, I think. And on the way back, we were talking about the show. And then before we got all the way home, people had started to talk about other things. Um, about you know their jobs or whatever, and I thought, oh, you can't you can't just have a normal conversation anymore. And I, I realised that I was apart from my friends in that way. Yep. We all loved the show, but I loved it more than everybody. And afterwards, I thought for the first time, whatever I do, I've got to get as close to that as I can. Not the not the noise or the music or being a rock star, but the creativity of it and the energy of it and the way that you affect people. And, and I knew that my life wouldn't be the same. And it's kind of always been like that. I, I spent three years in college going through old record shops and um, <laughs> uh, I, I care too much about this stuff. And then, of course, if you're lucky enough to make a living at it, then it really takes over because um, I don't write all the time. I consume all the time. I write sometimes, consume, write, consume. I think it is a different kind of a life. I remember when High Fidelity came out and everyone in the world, we were all just like, who is this guy? <laughs> How did he translate every dude every single one of us has ever known in our lives? I mean, Everyone I know read High Fidelity very quickly, and just we were all yammering about it for forever and a day. But then we were sort of going back and parsing things and being like, oh, remember that kind of guy? I mean, I especially when you work in bookstores, you've met all of these dudes. You've met all of these dudes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. dudes. Maybe yeah. there's still music heads working in a bookstore, but I still have the warm fuzzies about that book, and it's been a minute since that book came out. But I do think of you as one of those writers, though, that you're always sort of leading with your heart. And not all men do that when they write. And so the idea that you're digging in and getting really personal in a way, like really digging into your own Nick Hornby brain and saying, okay, here's what I think about. It's kind of fun. I mean, I knew Laurie Moore had been an influence for you. I knew Ann Tyler had been an influence for you. But I don't think Dickens gets enough credit for being funny. And certainly you are, no matter what you're writing, you're one of the funniest guys on the page. And I'm one of those people, though, who had Dickens maybe not taught to them in a great way in high school and well, it's, um, yeah I think, I, th I think that it's a disaster being taught dickens before mm -hmm. you're 18 probably mm -hmm. um, i think i said in the book that i had no idea that there were jokes in right. thing called bleak house and um and there were a whole ton of jokes and um i had no idea there was so much energy either 
Um, but then you think back to it, and it was he was like uh, the way these part work sold when, when the early books well he, he stuck with it but um you know they, they it was a chapter a month or, or whatever and um and and they were enormously popular with everyone so in a way it's not surprising to find that they were funny because you think of the popular audience it had in the 19th century they wanted it all like we do we they wanted jokes and they wanted to have their heartstrings tugged and and uh, they wanted adventure they wanted to be gripped they are like TV series. You talk about sort of the intersection of movies with both authors. And Purple Rain, I didn't see it in the theater, but I saw it later. And and then I understood sort of, I was too young, honestly, for, I think, when it came out in the theater. And <laughs> there was no way my parents were going to sign off on that. <laughs> but seeing it later, I understand how the album connects with the vision, the creative vision for the whole piece and Oliver Twist making sort of Dickens reputation in a new way when that film happened in that moment sort of in, in the, the musical of Oliver came yeah. out yeah exactly yeah and you talk about how the movies sort of made both of them as artists in a totally different way and part of me is thinking well don't the movies do that for all of us whether or not we're aficionados I mean you talk about Back in the day, you would go see the first, the Altman and the Scorseses as soon as they were released. And I mean, obviously, Dickens died long before film was a thing. But you could argue that theater was the movies of their time. So he's he's deeply involved in that kind of creativity. But also both of men were wildly theatrical, just in their personal style and the way they approach the world and the way they approach their work. The clothes thing... um... I could have written a chapter about clothes, but uh, uh, Dickens was a dandy. You know, he liked to dress up. Um, he liked to draw attention to himself. He was quite flamboyant. Um, I don't think he was a very shy man. I mean, Prince, they say, was very shy, but um, some of those stage outfits don't look to me like uh, the outward manifestation of someone who's crippled by, by shyness. Dickens was adapted a lot for the theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And quite often pirated. I mean, they, they were, he was so popular that theatrical uh, performances of his works went on before he'd finished the books. So they'd make up the ending because they hadn't read the, the whole thing. Yeah, the theatre was, was the movies then. What's different about Purple Rain is that, you know, Prince had done pretty well up until yeah. Purple Rain, but he, he wasn't a megastar. And, uh, the idea that you could say to your management, as he did, um, I want to make a movie, I want to be the star of it, and you've got to fund it, you've got to find funding for it, seems extraordinary now. Mm-hmm. Um, but they got it together and they did it, and then it became the biggest movie that year. And that endless loop of movie, music, movie, music, movie, music, so the album sold the movie, sold the, the, the album, um, that that seems like kind of genius marketing. Um, uh, the thing with Dickens was that I think Oliver changed his reputation. That, um, that he became this much cuddlier, warmer, funnier person um, as a result of Oliver in the public imagination. The, the the film version of Oliver Twist that came out after the war. I mean, it wasn't shown in America for a couple of years because of the anti-Semitic nature of the Fagin character, which nobody noticed 
I mean, it, it had been done differently in in the musical, and um, and it just created this whole new Dickens. I think one that lives on, actually. But this idea, too, not just of the theatricality, but that they're out in the world and they're touring live, this is also, I mean, Prince figures out pretty much before anyone else. Now it's kind of the constant, like, do you ever get off the road? By all reports, every live show, I never got to see him live, but everyone I know who's seen him live was just like, this, you need to go. You just need to experience and you need to be around this and you need to have it all happen. Here's Dickens doing, what did you say, 78? Dates in five months. It was some crazy. It's American yeah. yeah. And it's not like he was hopping on a plane. I mean, you've got to do <laughs> goat carts and horses and stagecoaches. And- it, it was brutal. I think it was a brutal tour. Yeah. One of the things that Prince realized before everyone else was um, that albums didn't matter anymore. Whenever it was, 2008 that he gave away his new album in a newspaper. Right, right. Um, And everyone said, this is crazy. You know, he's lost the plot. But at the same time, he was doing a 31-night residency in England's biggest indoor venue. And you think, well, that's crazy too. Um, He's not going to sell that out because his career was at a bit of a slump at the time. Um, and, and it worked brilliantly. Everyone I know in London that summer went to see Prince. They're like you know, half a million people or something, uh, more than that. The marketing was actually rather rather brilliant. And of course, everyone would do that now if they knew they could sell out that number of nights in a, in a big theatre because they're not earning anything from recordings. Which is, I, that's a whole nother conversation. That freaks me out that people are not getting paid for their work. But Harry yeah. Styles just did 15 nights at Madison Square Garden. In 2022, wow. 15 nights. And I get Harry Styles. I get it. I get yeah. it. But 15 nights at Madison yeah. Square Garden, that is not a small space. One of the things that's changed all this is the internet. It was a real lot of trouble to get tickets to shows when yeah, I was going. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, it was like postal orders. I don't know if you have postal orders in America. We do. Postal yeah, order. we, we do. Yeah. Uh, Postal orders, stamped addressed envelopes, and uh, and not everyone saw these ads. You know, they were they were in the music papers. And now you can be browsing on the internet, and you you see something's on, and you you click, and and that's it. So uh, the appetite for live music has really increased, and also the idea. I mean, I don't know what it, what it's like for you, but the, the idea of buying people presents as well. You think, but everything's free. What's the point of spending money on them? But a live event, an unrepeatable thing, um, has a value that most things that we grew up consuming don't have anymore. It's completely true. I actually just saw Joe Jackson in a very small venue in Los Angeles, yeah. probably 2,000 seats. It was just electric. And also, I was delighted to see that my dude and I were not, in fact, the youngest people in the room because I was beginning <laughs> to think that might be the case. And, you know, good for him. And I, years ago, I saw Leonard Cohen at a tiny venue at the University of Texas. Oh, wow. And 3,000 seats, same thing. There's been a lot of haphazard seeing of music for me, um, simply because someone says, do you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I, I, you know, I was much more of a concert person when I was younger. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I saw REM and, you know, folks like that. But now I'm kind of like, yeah, okay, I'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, you, you should go, man. 
during lockdown, I realised that that was the thing that mattered to me most, um, that I missed. Yeah. was mm-hmm. live music. I didn't really miss sport um, very much, partly because, and I've come to realise this as I've got older anyway, but sport, if you care about it, has an enormous capacity to cause you pain. Um, <laughs> yes. And, and at a time when we were all very upset about everything um, and they brought football back behind closed doors, empty stadiums. And I thought, I really can't, I really can't be laid any lower than I am by my, the performance of my football team. Whereas music's just pure joy. Well, and you have a fun line actually too in the book where you say, no one can hear the words dearly beloved without thinking of the (laughs) And it's so true though. It is completely, there is no way. When I think about, so I have this one monster playlist that I just, you know, you, I just throw everything on there and it's about 18 hours long now. Okay. (laughs) So when Dove's Cry circulates quite a lot through, I want to go back to Dickens and how Dickens is taught, because I think it's not dissimilar on both sides of the Atlantic where you've got kids whose brains are not fully cooked. And then you hand them a 500 page book and say, ha ha, figure it out. Well, it's not that they're not just fully cooked, but they consume things in a different way. Um, I mean, this is something that I think all educational bodies and and writers have to grasp, is that um, people don't necessarily read a lot. Um, They they read in small bursts on screens if they do read. We just have to accept that things are changing. Um, Technology always changes. The medium. Um, so, you know, the reason that we think albums are such a great, the vinyl record is such a great format is because you could get five songs on each side. Um, and actually when CDs, it was 70 minutes, they were always too long. It's very hard to find a perfect album that was made on CD because they were filling it up and they, they never had quite enough songs. So it, it lost that classic album status and now of course albums can be any length uh, right. because they don't often or people don't listen to them in that form and I, I think that you know the same is is true of books that thing that I quote in the book about George Orwell being convinced that uh, David Copperfield had been written by a child I mean those Victorian sentences no child is going to think a kid wrote this that, and, and they need a different kind of prose um, they need it to be much more transparent. They'd be able to see right through the prose at the world that's being described. And, and yet somehow the canon of literature gets set and never gets added to. Um, and if anyone tries to add it, add anything to it, they say, oh, that's just being politically correct or right on. You think, you've got to be kidding me. That This is entirely random that literature froze at this point. And, and Dickens should just be someone who's on your bookcase and if someone recommends him you think oh okay I've got a copy of that I'm going to get that out but not because it's being rammed down you anyway. So you sent me on a little bit of a rabbit hunt the other down a rabbit hole I should say because you referenced an introduction that David Gates wrote for an edition of Great Expectations and I remember reading Jernigan and thinking who is this like it just Jernigan was one of those novels and I read it exactly the right moment And I was young enough to think, oh, yeah, this is, I get this. I get this. I get this guy. He's just, you know. And I didn't know that Gates had a thing for Dickens until I read this. 
introduction <laughs> that you sent me chasing off for. But I mean, he's just one of the folks who has an affinity. And I'm sure there's a list as long as my arm. And But can you think of some of the other folks who are not you and not David Gates who are huge openly? I mean, Barbara Kingsolver has a novel coming this fall that's a retelling, I think, of David Copperfield with some other oh, stuff okay. happening. Uh, well, Peter Carey did oh, a yeah, couple right. of um, yeah. um, Dickens-esque books. I think Vikram Sait and, um, and um, Rohinton Mystery maybe were you know, very Completely. influenced by, by Dickens. He gets a lot of criticism from some snooty writers for being sentimental, um, uh, which he can be at times. The number of characters he created... Uh, could populate a small town. I mean, if you if you take all the books together, the minor characters, there are a couple of pages in David Copperfield where David, I think, is trying to sell his jacket because he's run out of money, and he goes in to see this like rag and bone guy, and and this guy is kind of mad, eccentric, a bit dangerous. Dickens didn't need to do any of this. It's just like he could have gone in, got his few pence for the jacket, and continued on his journey, but. Dickens' sense of pleasure in writing this minor character in and giving him so much oomph and and the scene is so funny and so frightening and completely unnecessary. It's just there for the joy of entertainment. And that's why I went off on a bit of a rant in the book about paring things down and how every writing school tells you to remove all your uh, redundant uh, words. And... um, and I've always thought, but have you ever been in an airport and looked at the size of those yes. books that people yes, want to read? And they like long books. I shouldn't be saying that when I've just written the, the world's shortest book. But, um, <laughs> but, but people like that kind of generosity of spirit, I think, and, uh, and spend time with people. The, the new J.K. Rowling's a thousand pages, right? I bet there's something she could have taken out, but she didn't want to. But I've heard you also say in other interviews that you start writing with really insanely tight drafts and you realize that you've got to add in more yeah I, I i underwrite i think and um and when i read it back i think oh how's anyone supposed to understand why she did that when she was there the page before and and so it gets a bit longer um with the second draft i bore myself <laughs> <laughs> neck yeah. I, so here's the thing the screenplays by nature teleplays screenplays whatever you want to call them i mean you're leaving out all of the details, right? I mean, it's literally, it's dialogue moving the story forward. That's essentially what, you know, and, and occasionally a little bit of movement, but yeah. it's really stripped down and it's an entirely different experience from writing, you know, about a boy, mm. which I remember the first time I saw you read in New York and you were doing the little kid's voice because he was stuffy and, yeah. and I'm watching you and you're doing, and I can't do the voice. I'm sorry. I can't do the funny <laughs> voice. And I'm just laughing at you going, okay, he's in it. He, this guy is, the, we are getting the entire experience. And the Kinsian experience. <laughs> kind of. And then, but the, I'm watching the audience too, because that's half the fun when you're at an event is, is seeing how people are responding. You could see the response and you could hear the response and it was just really fun. And here you are essentially making silly voices, but with a lot of heart and a lot of soul, because obviously the point was this kid. Yeah. And 
to see that kind of joy in the creation, I mean, certainly you do talk about some moments where Prince and Dickens are clearly ready to throw things against the wall because people are not taking stuff seriously. But why create if there isn't some joy to it? Well, I completely agree with you. And um, I think it's another thing that we need to have a conversation about with, um, with books that we're trying to present to kids, because these are very, very troubling times, politically, ecologically, and yet dystopia seems to be um, something that we expect our children to think about and study. And, and you think, for all of us, music, books, all of this stuff is, is an escape. Yes, it's nice to be dreamy and escapist and all of these things, but reading to me is an act of connection. And it's it's pulling into the world. There are folks that will tell you that reading, you know, builds empathy, and sometimes that's true, I think, but it really ultimately is an act of connection, that you want to be part yeah. of something that isn't just right in front of your face. When people say that reading builds empathy, I always say, have you ever met a book critic? Because all they do <laughs> is read. Yeah. <laughs> or, or come to that, an English professor. <laughs> and now it's totally true. I mean, and there are times too where, you know, I hear people saying, well, I made myself finish it. And I'm like, why? Yeah. That, why? That, if you hate it, just put it down, move on. You don't have to. I mean, I, can, I could not agree with you more because no one ever says that about an album or a TV program. Right. Um, and, and so I hate reading being put in a different category, which is one right. of duty and no pleasure. And the moment you're saying you make yourself finish it, then it becomes separated from the rest of the arts. And I, I think that's wrong. It, it should be right in the middle uh, alongside movies and TV and, and music and, and, and people should choose to do it. But while we say, yeah, I know this is a bit of a slog, but believe me, this person can write, I... that's, that's no good. No. And when I have people say to me too, well, just get past the first hundred pages. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm a big believer in that first line has to swing. Yeah. That first line. And maybe a paragraph has to swing, but at least the first page, like you can't asking people when, and this is also, <laughs> I'm going to get on my high horse for a second. Short stories. I love short stories. I love short yeah. story collections. I love story. I just, I love short stories. And if you're standing online waiting for something and you can read a short story in the amount of time yeah. that you're scrolling through whatever social media platform yeah. you're on. And I just, you know, I've got people saying, well, you know, they're hard to read. How are they hard to read? It's 10 minutes. You can get in and out. Such <laughs> resistance it? to them. Yeah. Again, I think it's the idea that if I'm going to put my time into a book, then it better be bloody well worth it. Yeah. <laughs> For me, reading, even when I was in school and sort of being force-fed things by people who were not excited to teach them, and that is not disrespecting to you. There are teachers out there who are amazing. I just had an experience that, you know, was not necessarily singular. But to have someone stand at the front of the room and say, well, I assigned you this because there are no cliff notes. Thank you for your honesty, but yeah. I would actually like to be told why this fits into the larger context of my life in suburban Massachusetts and why you have me reading this. <laughs> Instead of, I picked it because it's hard. <laughs> and it I was a minor a... Faulkner. <laughs> ah, yeah. I, I, I once had a letter from um, a young man. Basically, he said I had a choice at school. Um, between uh, uh, to write a paper about Pride and Prejudice or Fever Pitch. And as I like 
football, I've chosen fever pitch. She said, but there are no Cliff's notes. Um, so uh, he said, could you answer the following questions? Number one, what is this book about? <laughs> Okay, I will say as not a huge soccer, I, basketball is my game, right. but I loved Fever Pitch because I loved your voice and your enthusiasm, and I just wanted to see the world through your sort of point well, of I view. I mean, the sports generally, if you put yourself in the hands of someone who's going to let you down repeatedly, then you understand what the book's about. <laughs> but the idea that art can evolve, Prince... I remember sort of the wider suburban world that I was part of. Like, people just didn't get him for a really long time. And the minute I got to college, there were people who got it immediately. And it's the contextual clues. It's the pushing the art forward. It's, you know, if I had a dollar for every 80-year-old who, when I was younger, was saying, oh, no, no, you have to read this, Dickens. And I'm kind of going, um, have you read? And, you know, fill in the blank yeah. of whatever. I mean, because... Like every kid, I went through phases of reading stuff that was, you know, whatever. <laughs> Got me to the other side. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, again, because I had the run of spaces that, you know, now we have YA, which is a totally different thing. And you've actually written YA, which mm. I didn't realize until I was noodling mm. around here. So when did you write the YA? 2006, 2007. Um, I think... I think there are still plans for it to be a Broadway musical that might oh, be on okay. next year. Um, Tony Hawk, who the book is partly about, um, is is producing it. Um, the skateboarder? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, it, I'm the, sorry, the is, what? <laughs> yeah. In the book, this t teenager, he reads Tony Hawk's book and it becomes a kind of Bible to oh, him. Oh, okay, and, okay. And so he uses phrases and, and sentences that can be applied to his own life. Not long before that, I didn't know who Tony Hawk was, but my American publisher sent me a poster of a man standing on a skateboard holding high fidelity. And it was him. He chose a book, a literacy campaign. And I said, why, why is this guy on a skateboard choosing my book? I said, that's Tony Hawk. So I got interested in him. Then I wrote this book and then he read the book. And uh, yeah, it was just a way of writing about younger people, really. It didn't matter to me whether it was YA or not. There are so many distinctions that we and <laughs> Hi, bookseller, guilty of this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just... <laughs> Hi! <laughs> but the idea that we have to label things where I'm just like, ultimately, whether it's music or theater or movies or books, it's all story, right? Yeah. Even, even when we're reading the news, like, you need a narrative, you need a narrative thread for a podcast episode. I mean, Absolutely. we can tell ourselves that stories are like, you know, cute little things that, haha, we use to entertain ourselves. But no, actually, stories define us. Stories help us find our identities in the world, like, help us figure out what our taste is. I mean, story is the thing that makes us human. And, well, and we spend a lot of time creating our own stories. I mean, yeah. if, when you meet someone for the first time, and you start talking, what you're delivering is a story that you've written and rewritten over the years. You think, well, where's the beginning of this? Where's the middle? Um, what's the thing that's going to hook people in? And even if you're not conscious of that, you have edited your own life and turned it into something that might entertain someone else. Because it's much more fun that way. I want to talk about collaboration for a second, because, I mean, Dickens not really known... 
he's the top of the screen yeah. kind of thing. And and Prince the same way. I mean, obviously Prince had collaborators as well, but my understanding is he could probably play any instrument he wanted to play and do whatever he needed to do. But it's a little different when you're putting a book out into the world now versus creating a television series or a mm. at least if it's a book, it's kind of, as you say, your editor and you and your editor is mm. trying to make a better version of you, yeah. <laughs> which it's a very funny way to put the collaborative process. I'm wondering how much of that is sort of a response to doing the film work where, I mean, literally the first time you sit down with a script and you do the table read, that's the only time anyone's going to see things as you lay them I know. That's, that's the biggest day for the writer, uh. I think, where, where, your, <laughs> where your play, as it were, is read as yeah, a yeah. play and, and it's in that order and, and all the themes are there. You know, I have to say also that table readings have been invaluable to me, and and um, and I think, oh, I've, I've yes, I wrote this scene, but it doesn't work. It slows mm -hmm. up the action. It's got to go. And um, I, I really like that part of of screenwriting and and working with smart people because no matter what book people say, a lot of producers, directors, actors are super smart. And I want to listen to what they have to say about something and amend my work accordingly. And there are lots of reasons that things change that are not artistic. I don't think that's such a bad thing either. Um, people joke about test screenings and saying right, that right. they actually change films as a result of test screenings. Well, I think if there was an equivalent in books, people would jump on it. If, if you could tell, if you could read a whole book and get an audience to listen to it, and you could say that see that they were nodding off two thirds of the way through. You'd do something about it. It's an it's an invaluable tool. I mean, movies are kind of going a bit wrong at the moment because of Marvel and and so on. No, the best movies were a pro product of collaboration and and minds more than one mind. And I have to say too, I mean, when we did that screening of Juliet Naked, and that was what seventeen, eighteen, yeah. What a great movie. It's like they caught the soul of what you do. Such a lovely movie. It's it's wonderful. And I was so yeah. pleasantly surprised. And I may have accidentally gotten a little teary at the end, which when you're <laughs> Estonian, you're not supposed to admit that. But guess what? No, I just remember being really super charmed because, you know, when you know the book, and I'm one of those people where I'm like, listen, sometimes the movie is better. Sometimes. I just, I didn't know what to expect. And so to be able to sit there in that very small room, and of course, you know, it was just a bunch of us. and but it was so lovely. It was so great. Mm. And everyone just got it and they showed up and they did the thing and made more art. And it's the evolution of art that I'm really interested in, whether it's music or movie, you know, I mean, can we just use art as an umbrella term for yeah, all sure. of the fun things that yeah. are yeah. exciting? I mean, and I that's the that other thing that I love about collaboration is it takes me out of my world and into someone else's world. And up until the movies, I, you know, most people I met in the arts were writers. I didn't know anyone. Then I knew writers. And now I know directors and actors and, and soundtrack composers. And that enriches me um, to know what actors think of something, what they need from something, um, you know, what a director can do with something. I mean, there's a very commercial imperative in, in cinema, uh, which comes up again and again, which is give us something that enables us to cast up. And that means that you've got the two lead characters, but if you if you can give minor characters 
a lot to do or something memorable, you're more likely to attract a good actor. And, um, you know, it's, it's, and, and then we, we've got more chance of getting funded. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you yeah. think, oh, oh, this is vulgar. And then you start thinking about it. You think, oh, they just mean write a better part. And then that means write a better minor character. Um, and how can that not be helpful to you? When, when we did an education, you know, we got all sorts of people in, in smaller roles. Like, you know, Emma Thompson played the headmistress and she loved that part. It was two days of her life and she wanted to be a part of the film. But if, if the part had been flatter, we wouldn't have got that and we would have got someone less memorable. Those scenes would have been less memorable. And it, when I transfer that to books, it just means make sure everybody has good lines. Um, not because I'm thinking about the movie adaptation, but because that makes the book better. I know what a Nick Hornby novel sounds like in my head. I know <laughs> when I sit down, like I know, like, and I'm just, I'll follow you. I, I just, it doesn't, I, I don't need flap copy to say, I, I mean, honestly, I saw this title on a spreadsheet and I was like, yep, we'll do that. Of course. <laughs> if I'm going back to Dickens because... You made me want to read Dickens again. Yeah. <laughs> I have great expectations, which if I'm remembering correctly, Marlon James loves great expectations. So yeah. there's one point, and, and obviously, you know, we've got Gates doing great expectations. So yeah. a couple points plus you. Great expectations, Copperfield, Bleak House, and Tale of Two Cities. So let's put them in order because people like these things. Where do I start? Okay, well, um, I think for me... David Copperfield and Great Expectations, there's not much in it. Um, I think possibly David Copperfield um, for me, um, because when I first read it, which was in the 21st century, it was not familiar to me. Um, And I I think whatever, it's hard to avoid Great Expectations in in terms of TV and, and film adaptations. So you might know a little bit too much about it already. Um, David Copperfield, I didn't know much about, and it's it's his most autobiographical novel, and it's pure joy. Um, Tale of Two Cities is a he only wrote two history historical novels, as it were. That's one, and Barnaby Rudge is another. You know, it's a great adventure. Bleak House is one of the longest, so I, I'd maybe oh. see if you love <laughs> David Copperfield before you turn to, to Bleak House. <laughs> One thing I would say is don't read Hard Times just because it's the shortest. It's got none of the things that make Dickens great in it. It's it's unremittingly bleak. I was talking to someone the other day about Edith Wharton and how every kid is made to read Ethan Frome. Which, which is, is the worst one like, to read! <laughs> yeah, sure, you can read it in a day, but it's got nothing of Edith Wharton in it. You want to talk about Steinbeck for a second? East of Eden by far. <laughs> East of Eden, hands down. The only Steinbeck you really need is East of Eden. That is the quintessential American novel. It's the quintessential California novel. It is, I love that book. The Pearl? Really? <laughs> the Red Pony? I mean, there's they're smaller Steinbecks that never get taught. Yeah. And Wayward yeah. Bus is a story collection, too. And it's just like there's so much. I have this little pocket on one of my shelves at home that's just weird Steinbeck that no one else knows. It's like he, well, me and the that. estate. But that idea that kids have got to read this author, therefore we will give them the smallest scrap so that yeah. they can say they've read it. It's, it's, I mean, I would much rather they read Harry Potter than a very bad 
Steinbeck. There's a discipline to reading, and I don't mean that to sound weird, but like it is a practice. You just yeah. you grab 15 minutes here. You grab. I happen to be very lucky, and I can read very quickly, and I can read a lot of text very quickly and retain all of it, um, which is not something that everyone can do. But I know that's something I've learned over time, and it's not something I just woke up being able to do at the age of six. But I do think we have the great advantage of not being born in the Apple era because I I literally had nothing else to do. And, you know, I was glad to have read Mm -hmm. all those things. But if there had been something else to do, I probably would have done the something else. (laughs) I just want to hear a story. And, yeah, I probably, you know, would have gravitated towards whatever screen was handy. Although my parents were big on the we don't watch television in this house. So that may also explain my terrible taste in certain things because <laughs> it's like it's all novel to me well, um yeah, even at uh, my I, advanced I, age <laughs> it's terrible you, you talked to me at a weird point in british history where because of our dear queen we're being returned to the 1950s until next week anyway there's like nothing open and there's nothing on tv the bbc cancels all its programs you think oh this is entirely appropriate for someone who came to the throne in 1952 that we're now being taken back to 1952. It seems to me entirely politically driven this time. With Diana, something weird happened in the way that something weird happened when Elvis died. I've always wanted someone to write a book about the first 48 hours or 72 hours after Elvis died. How did that happen? How did did a washed-up Vegas singer who couldn't buy a hit when he died became this thing? Suddenly. And the same thing happened with Diana a bit. With with the Queen, it seems very sort of right-wing newspaper, BBC-driven, like telling us we're not allowed to have any fun. It's a good thing you have a book handy. (laughs) I mean, you've got books, we've got DVDs, we can stream things. I just... And again, that's, for me, the point of art is to move us forward as people. Yeah. And I want the language to change. Make connections that we haven't made before and, yeah. Right? I mean, that's the fun of it. I mean, there are some people who, when I meet them at first, they're like, you're a bookseller? I don't, so you like to read a lot. And I'm like, well, actually, what I really like to do is talk a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, straight up, because the whole point of reading is to make the world bigger and to be able to talk to people that you don't necessarily, I mean, I get so much pleasure from talking to writers. It's kind of ridiculous. and actually, I'm if we this... could just swallow a pill that that allowed us to have read the book and then just do all the talking. Okay, there's that. Somebody's probably written that into a novel, but I'm looking at this Hua Shu over my shoulder. I just talked to him the other day in his episode. He was talking about making a mixtape for his launch event because he writes a lot of music criticism for The New Yorker. And he's literally making a tape on a cassette player. Oh, wow, wow. The coolest, I I was just laughing because he also did a lot of zines when he was in college and things like that. But the idea that you can make this physical thing and the amount of time that we spent making mixtape and like, is this friend worth a mixtape? Is this going to last long enough for me to invest all of that time and all of that thought and all of that energy? I do think that you got better mixes as a result. Oh, completely, completely. Because during the course of the the three minutes that you have to listen to the song while you're putting it on tape, um, you you start to hear a tone and you start to hear a theme. And and whereas when I'm just dragging things from Spotify into a playlist, 
I, I know I've got good music, but I don't know. There isn't the same coherence. I was doing research for a different show and um, I needed a piece of opera that I had not heard. And I needed Glenn Gould's Goldberg Variations. And now right. Spotify thinks I'm a thousand years old. It's <laughs> 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 like, now there's a point to this. I promise. I think you should have done it on someone else's computer. I actually like messing with the robots. I really enjoy it. I mean, robots are only as good as the people who program them, and I just kind of enjoy it. Well, I think the more you put in there and the more confused they get, the more likely you are to come across something from them that might mean something. There's a little more serendipity, but also physically, I mean, just being able to walk through space, um, That I, I missed that serendipity quite a lot. And now it's harder to get lost because we all have you know, supercomputers in our pockets and we can find directions. And I don't always have the best sense of direction. Sometimes I just, even when I know where I'm going somewhere, I convince myself that I have to turn left instead of right. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I did that again. Okay. That's the joy of browsing, in fact. It's not knowing where you're going and wandering around and finding a book that you didn't know that you wanted or were interested in. And however much they try, they cannot recreate the act of browsing on, on the internet. No, and I fall in love with ideas really quickly. I frequently buy books on top of things that get sent to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I have multiple books going at once. I can't, I'm, I'm never just reading one thing, but what's on your nightstand right now? What haven't you gotten to that you've picked up where you're thinking, oh, I need to do this? Because you were reading some giant books about Dickens. The Prince biographies are a little smaller, but the Dickens. Yeah, books. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm halfway through... Um... The the book about the Sacklers. Oh, Empire of Pain is so good. Because so I just finished um, his um, Say Nothing, the book about Northern Ireland, yep. which is one of the best nonfiction books I've yep. ever read. And I'm, I'm mixing that up with Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Have yeah, the Gabriel Zevin. Oh, yeah. it's terrific. It's yeah. that so book. Those are the two that are on the go. I've just been sent two Grill Marcus books. Um, oh, uh, which are coming out, as usual, I've got, you know, too much. But that's the thing. I mean, we all have too much going at any given point because we wouldn't do what we do if we didn't have too much going on. One never never cuts one's cloth exactly to the shape of one's life. I mean, I was laughing because I was looking for, I have an interview next week and I was like, is the galley at home or is it in the, I, I mean, I found it, but I had a moment of, I'm not entirely sure where that went. And I'm looking in a giant pile, I'm like, Okay, it's not here. It's, I, okay, well, I, I think I know where I can remember <laughs> saying in The Believer once that um, it doesn't matter if you buy too many books because um, books are a very cheap way of expressing who you are um, mm. on the shelf. So you yeah. can't afford the art that you want. Um, you, you, you can't get that hopper, um, uh, not the original anyway. But the, the sort of full complexity of who you are and what you're interested in even if you haven't read the books. I like that being represented on a shelf. I also frequently end up buying something a second time because I can't find my copy. Oh, honestly. <laughs> and I got I, home in an office and, and it's yeah. always another place. I think, oh, hell, I'll just buy another one. And because it's easier, but also watching the evolution of a book's jacket. Or, yeah, that's you know, Because cool. the copy yeah. doesn't always change necessarily, but like, yeah. you know, there's stuff that... I can look at it and say, oh, I know when that was designed and I, yeah. oh, I'm pretty sure there's a new edition of that. But at the same time, I get nervous if I walk into someone's house and I don't see bookcases with books on them. I get itchy. I don't know what to do. 
No, and I guess that's what it's going to be like maybe in 10 or 15 years. We've already got no music on shelves. Right. Um, and that makes me nervous. And it's like, right. how do I know who you are? If if uh, if everyone owns all the music in the world, how do I know who you are? <laughs> right, right. And I mean, that's half the fun, though, is we get to sort of dig around and yeah. be, a, be a little judgy. <laughs> I always want to buy or rent property that's got the good books and records on the shelves. That's like, oh, I forget that. that they're not going to be there when I move in. I just think it's a good vibe. I did actually buy something recently because my original copy was printed on not great paper and it smells funny. <laughs> I mean, and then I've also repurchased Middlemarch in a different edition because the edition I have is frankly just not attractive. Yeah. Okay. I, there's a reason I work in books. There's a reason. It's and also, just... you're going to spend a long time with Middlemarch. You want to look at something nice every day. Uh, I, yes, I am. And I've had so many people who I really respect say, no, no, you of all people, you need to read this. So what's next? Are you going back? Are you going back to that world where you're writing 60 page I'm, things that turn into I, three hours? Or are you staying I'm with us? So, yeah. Um, uh, I've got a <laughs> couple of adaptations at the moment that I'm, I'm really enjoying. Um, and um, I'm trying to resuscitate my relationship with Ben Folds for another medium. Well, that will be fun because honestly, yeah, fun as me. long as you're creating, I'm happy. So okay. do, do whatever well, you need to do. Not that you need to entertain creating. me, but <laughs> I, do. I think it's kind I do. of great. I think yeah. it's really kind of great that you have all of these different outlets and you can talk to people in different ways. I mean, that's, we just have to keep moving forward. Nick, yeah. We just have to keep moving forward, oh, yeah, yeah. whatever that takes. Yeah. I, I don't think that there will be such a job as a novelist in, in 15, 20 years' time. It will be writer. And, right. and that writer will have to learn to write in different mediums if they want to sustain mm -hmm. a career throughout their lives. Well, there's always going to be a bookseller. That yeah. much I can, that yeah. I can, that <laughs> I can tell you without Absolutely. any trepidation, there will always, 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 always be booksellers. Nick Hornby, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Dickens and Prince is out now, along with all of your back catalogue, which everyone should go find right now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of wonderful books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Dickens and Prince by Nick Hornby. I'm Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm joined by a brand new book buddy. Jamie, hello. Welcome. Hi, Mark. I'm Jamie, and I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Leawood, Kansas. Fantastic. Glad to have you here. Uh, we've got a couple wonderful titles to talk about. So, Jamie, if you don't mind, I'll dive right in. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. So I was thinking about the marriage of music and literature, and this title kept bubbling up to the top of my head, uh, so I just couldn't ignore it anymore. And that is uh, Bowie's Bookshelf by John O'Connell. Ah, so good. <laughs> love, love, love. Uh, this is a beautiful look at the titles that really shaped David Bowie's life and career. So in 2013, uh, David Bowie drew up a list of 100 books that were very influential on his life. They may not have been his favorite books in the world, but they were certainly substantial in his formative years and in his career and his personal life. So 
this book is featuring each of those 100 titles, and they're accompanied by John O'Connell's essays, which are tender, very fascinating, very thoughtful looks at how these books influenced David Bowie in his work and in his life. You've got such a wide range of titles. David Bowie was a voracious reader, and you will see things like literary classics that you would expect, but then hefty, very dense Russian history textbooks, basically. Uh, so he was a curious man, all the better for it, because everything that he produced was true genius. So any title that would influence that genius has got to be fascinating for any reader. So if you are a racist reader yourself, if you have a wonderful reader in your life, if you are a fan of music, really, if you just want a new fascinating story, please check out Bowie's Bookshelf by John O'Connell. Oh, so good. Hmm. It is excellent. It is oh. a go-to for me, too. Love it. Easy, Love easy it. with Bowie fans. We are uh, we're easy to please. Anything that David... <laughs> Truly. <laughs> you can we just, love. <laughs> yes. Slap his picture on it. We'll buy it. Uh, right. So, uh, Jamie, what do you have for us? Uh, okay. Uh, so, I am a Nick Hornby fan. On top of David Bowie, I'm a Nick Hornby fan. I was born in the 80s, so I'm a Prince fan. Of course, I'm a Dickens fan. I'm working at the bookstore, so you have to be, right? That's a prerequisite. Uh, so I was very excited to jump into this book. And as I was um, thinking about what to recommend, my mind went to the, you know, million and one different music and author biographies that are out there. Um, we sell tons. They're all entertaining. But I felt like Nick Cornby was really trying to make this point about how prolific um, Prince and Dickens were and how unique that was. Um, to these two people whose work he really enjoyed. And I started thinking, who else could he have included on that list? Because surely there are others. Maybe that's not who he's a fan of, but he could have included him on his list, right? So when I thought about that, I'm like, okay, I can't believe I didn't think about this before. But Paul McCartney, we had the uh, Barnes & Noble Book of the Year for 2021 was Paul McCartney's The Lyrics. And it is a gorgeous uh, two-volume set. Uh, I'm going to lift it up. It's very heavy. <laughs> Very hefty. It's got Paul's face on the side here, which is nice because who doesn't want to look at Paul's face? Right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it has a staggering number of songs in it. His body of work was also amazing. So 154 songs that are included in this two volume set. You've got the full lyrics of each song. You have his notes. You have never before seen photographs um, from his wife, Linda Eastman reproductions of his notebooks. There's other ephemera in there. It is a book you literally have to get your hands on um, in order to enjoy it. And it is one that customers are always so impressed when we show it to them and open it up. My husband bought me this book for Christmas last year. And I have, uh, I know this is silly, I have poured over it <laughs> uh, a lot, uh, many, many times. Um, and, and when I hear a Paul McCartney song or Beatles song, I can now go and see what the story is behind it. Um, what he was thinking, uh, and get a little insight. Favorite. Ah, uh, fantastic. Lyrics is, it was such a treasure. It remains a treasure. I, you could open to any page and just get this lovely slice of Mr. McCartney. It's a fantastic choice. I'm not shocked that you picked a wonderful book. <laughs> that wonderful taste. Oh, jeez. Uh, oh, Thanks. shucks. Oh, shucks. <laughs> Well, that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Poured Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. 
And I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. Thanks, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.